Hey, all right, so here we are. Uh, we're just going to kind of jump right into this one. This is the uh, third episode. I'm going to be reading the actual first chapter. The last one was sort of the prelude. Uh, the first chapter to The Pile and the Panda from book one. This is pages 17 to 30, and it'll be a little bit because uh, these pages are very dense. And uh, I'm kind of just trying to wrap this one up real quick. That's why uh, no real fancy intro or anything. Or maybe there is. I guess I'll decide that in post-production. Regardless, I'm trying to get these CDs out and done because uh, my reading is tomorrow, which will probably be a lot more fun to listen to than this old stuff. I'm reading from my new book, The New American Novel. Um, but I promised I would do this crazy thing, so I'm going to do it. I'm just going to jump right in because i got a while to go. Uh, okay, so this is chapter one. When the sun began streaming in the room, I woke up, stretched, found my pack of cigarettes, lit a smoke, and sat in the bed smiling without a thought in my head. What is my agenda today? What is my role? My role is the role of the clown, I said to myself. I will be the clown. I will be the dumb clown, and I will be proud of the fact I have been given a part in the big circus. What is my part? To smile. And so smile I did, sitting there on my bed, a mattress on the floor in the middle of a wooden floor. When the room, while the room filled up with smoke and huge dusty beams of ripe sunlight shot, th shot down through the window and splashed upon the white walls with their peeling paint, the nicotine-stained curtains fluttering in the gentle early spring breeze that wafted in from the city outside, I was smiling, a smiling clown, what had I been so worried about before? I couldn't even remember. The important thing was to smile, remember to smile, never stop smiling, and to make sure the ashes of the cigarette never didn't fall onto the bed. Other than that, let it all rot. The world outside could be a smoking ruin, a boiling bog, a fiery conflagration. Here's those fancy words that I was so into then. Conflagration. Conflagration. Conflagration? I don't even know how to pronounce it. That's how long ago I used it. Uh, what did it matter is so long as I just stayed in this room and smiled and made sure not to ash on the bed or on the floor. From heaven to hell, there's a knock on the door and it's Larry. Days here always begin with Larry. Hey, Dave, he said, opening the door himself and striding into the room like a well-bred dog. What's the news today? I stubbed out my cigarette in the ashtray and continued sitting on the bed. The smile... My smile was gone. I didn't say a word. I just stared at the wall. I couldn't bear to look at Larry. Not today. Not on this brand new day. This Genesis. This inaugural holiday. I just knew he had a completely new outfit on. One I had never seen before. And there was just no way I would allow myself on this holiday, this clean slate, to take in the sight of Larry in a completely new outfit. There was just no way... I could do it. Something wrong, he said. He asked, still striding around the room in his show-dog manner, inspecting with his beady eyes the various aspects of my modest abode. I was still focused on the wall, on a very special piece of peeling white paint. When he moved towards it, I picked, up, picked something else to look at, a fluttering curtain with a tear, a black bug relaxing in the corner by a dusty tome, an empty glass on top of an orange crate, I could see out of the corner of my eye that it was very possible that the green shirt, shiny, he was wearing was one I had never seen before. I winced, I cringed, but I could not say a word. He continued, Well, I suppose you should know that Sal moved out today. Pause for dramatic effect. 
perhaps allowing me to gasp in real astonishment, continues after producing his own big sigh. That's right, he's out. He moved out. He left me a note, and you know what it said? Want to know what it said? He looked directly at me. I could feel the pressure of his eyes on my hair. My eyes focused on my bare feet on the wooden floor. He continued. He said he couldn't stand you. He said that he couldn't stand you and that he had to move out. He had to move out. So he's out. He's gone. I can't believe it. I can't fucking believe it. He's out. Who's going to pay his rent? Who's going to replace him? Do you know anyone who's looking for a room? Do you? I'll tell you what. I sure as hell don't. Damn. God damn it. What are we going to do, huh? What are we going to do? There's no one. There's no one who is looking for a room. I don't know anyone who is looking for a room. I sure as hell don't know anyone. It went on and on like this. The worst part about it is it would always end with a direct question, and he would look you in the eye with his beady gaze, and you had no choice but to reply, or else I guess he would just keep gazing on you for the rest of his life. I couldn't stand that gaze. And when you finally answered no, he'd say, what? Just like that, what? No matter how evidently you made yourself clear, what? And that was that. You had to repeat yourself. Mandatory. Sometimes he would say, excuse me, after the second repeat, or I beg your pardon? Whatever he used, the routine was always the same. You'd have to repeat yourself two or three times. He continued, well, Dave, what do you think we should do? The then, then the staring began, the gaze, those beady little eyes, the reflection of the green, shiny new shirt. I knew what I had to do. I knew the drill. I couldn't just let him stand there and stare all day. It was my role to smile, and I didn't have this kind of time available. Not the time that Larry apparently had. I had to say something. I really don't know, Larry, was my offering, my sacrifice. And so the inevitable apothecum. What? I built my, bit my lower lip. I was used to this in my previous life, before my new lease had begun. I said, I really don't know, Larry. I offered up a weak smile and then met his gaze. I lost my place. Uh, the shirt was new. It was resplendent in the sunlight. Larry's beady eyes narrowed even more into globules of perplexity. You don't really... What? I'm sorry, I didn't catch that. You heard me, I said adamantly. This would end, I said to myself. This must end. No, I didn't. I did not. You were mumbling. Look at me when you're talking. Look at me. Don't talk into your hand. Don't talk into your hand like that. I can't understand when you talk into your hand like that. Now, what were you saying? I forget. Don't start that, Dave. Don't start being so difficult. Don't be difficult. You were saying something, and I simply did not understand what you were saying. You were mumbling, talking into your hand, and I didn't understand you. Now, let me know. It's not a big deal. Just say it. I said, I really don't know, Larry. You said, pardon me? One more time? I couldn't stand it anymore. On this day, this special brand new, original and fresh day, I could not stand it. I stood up and pointed my finger towards the door with the finger of confidence, the new day finger. That's it. Get out of here. Now. I had never yelled at Larry before. I don't know if anyone yelled at Larry before. He just stood there looking at me like a wounded animal. His beady eyes turned sad and goopy, focused on that new day finger that was pointed right towards the door. All he could say was, excuse me? But I did not repeat myself. I held my ground and glared at him with the haughty, stone-cold confidence of a brand new man, pointing a brand new finger at a brand new exit door for Larry. And then he did turn around, did go through the door, without a sound or a word said. I could not believe it. I was almost proud of him. But I still slammed the door after he left, slammed it with a brand new strength and brand new enthusiasm. 
because it felt real good to do that. Well, I said to myself, now that he's gone, now that we are free to our thoughts, our new thoughts, our new world, our new roles, well, what shall we do? It's a huge open world out there. It's a world of sunlight and cool breezes and endless possibility. It's a limitless universe out there. And I am a young 19-year-old man of brand new potency. I am at the apex of my health and full of renewed vigor. I'm strong and I'm young and I might possibly be brilliant. What's out there for a young man like myself in those streets? Anything. Riches, women, cars, success, visions, epiphanies, dreams, excitement, delirium, breakthroughs, fine dining, toward rivers, life and death, and life. I fished around in my pockets and found a $5 bill, beautifully wrinkled. Well, I said to myself, let's go then. I found myself comfortably seated in Rittenhouse Square, the center of commerce, the transient grounds, the appealing appanage, the conflux of conformity, the nexus of success, or something like that. It was a crisp spring day, the breezy weather just warm and cold enough for a windbreaker or a sweater, the sunlight casting a thin light on the peoples of the park and the budding foliage, giving everything a healthy aspect. I was seated on a wooden bench adjacent to a ripe trash can, and my occupation was watching the pretty girls go rollerblading by. That's when you, that's when you know this was written in the 90s, when you've got the girls in the park rolling rollerblades. My sole possession was a copy of the current Philadelphia Inquirer, huh, who just recently declared bankruptcy, so now you definitely know it was in the 90s. A copy of the current Philadelphia Inquirer, which I had filched from somebody's doorstep, and in between appraisals of the various strolling and rollerblading in beauties, I passed, I perused the headlines and afforded myself a few vigorous laughs at all the atrocities that were occurring in our fair city. All the tricky thefts, terrible murders, rapes, stabbings, mortal as well as flesh wounds. All the wild inspire, inspired protests, thwarted revolutions, aborted riots, happening all over the world at once, all that oppression and repression and transgression and migration and transmigration and transmogrification and migrate with I'm sorry, and transmogrification that everyone was going through at once, all over the world, on a daily basis. And as I sat there reading this choleric chow chow, I thanked my lucky stars that I had the vivacious verb to be the zero that I was, and being this zero, I still had the God-given ability to sit on a bench and use my lungs and vocal cords to get a healthy laugh out of all of it. The chortle of the chosen. Occasionally, between bursts of bluster and robust roars of mirth, I palmed the five-spot in my pocket, thinking of the multifarious possibilities of its disbursement. I felt crazy and good sitting there in that park, gawking at the gorgeous and obviously successful women that walked past me in their fancy clothes. What could I ever do to make them talk to me? The gap between them and myself was a thousand leagues, a thousand galaxies, possibly more. All I could come up with was that if I just had some money, and I mean some real money, then they would talk to me. Perhaps then they would understand my latent or not-so-latent genius? No, it would have to be money. But how would I come up with that kind of money? I wasn't good at anything. I didn't even have a job. And did I ever plan on getting one? It was as if I'd thrown away my entire life, eschewed college, job, home, security, to come here to this proving ground, this so-called city of brotherly love, all because of a girl, that girl, a stupid girl, a stupid, stupid girl, a stupid, stupid, stupid girl, 
who had broken my heart and made me think I didn't want to live in this world anymore. So I came here with the jovially juvenile jejun of a junior Job. <laughs> That's really good. Seeing myself as a marked man, tortured by a bored God, abandoned by the heavens, I came here thinking I was going to die. And then I actually tried to die. I actually tried to do it, and it didn't work, and so now here I was, seated on a bench in the park, newspaper resting comfortably in my lap, thinking about beautiful women and how to make a lot of money. Isn't life just so strange sometimes? Well, I said to myself, am I, if I'm as insane as I think, sometimes think I am, if I'm marked by God and by the heavens and by destiny and fate and everything else, if I'm <clears throat> different, well, then there has to be something, something extremely special that sets me aside from everybody else, which means that there just has, just has, to be a reason that one of these fancy business dames who pass by this bench bench like a procession of angels with their neat leather purses and their clacking high heels and their jingling jewelry, there has to be a faint, minuscule, at a molecular level, reason for one of these high-fashioned wonders to fall for me. And there has to be a way for me to make a decent living in this crazy city. I sat there, stumped, trying to figure out just what it could be. I drew a blank. Nothing was coming up. My stomach was beginning to contort and grumble, empty, obviously after expelling last night's reckless repast. But I didn't want to blow the five just yet. There could be a future dormant in this fiber, so I decided I would walk it off. I strolled unceremoniously out of the park with no particular direction in mind. My head was beginning to speed up, lose control, the thoughts getting bigger and more unwieldy. I tried to keep it simple, women, money, talent, job. It spun a monk tangentially from there. I knew that when it got like this, it was possible to walk for hours. To lose myself in the world and into the thoughts, and in a few hours I could be either in New Jersey or else Norway. I simply had no control over it. It was early. It was still early when I left the park, and by noon I found myself meandering aimlessly in the industrial wasteland that is Northern Liberties pensively pondering bygone industries and listening to the crunch of broken glass beneath my sneakers. <laughs> There's one for you. If you guys, if you're listening and live in Philadelphia, uh, this, these descriptions of uh, Northern Liberties are, uh, you know, real relic of the past. <laughs> bygone industries. Uh, and listen to the crunch of broken glass beneath my sneakers. You remember this is taking place and uh this is in nineteen ninety six, so long time ago. Strong willed spring flora grew resolutely among the rotting machinery, pariahs of vegetable determination. I was walking under the monolithic shadow of the hulking Schmidt's factory remains when it occurred to me that I was in the proximity of Al Cohen's pad. Just the man to see, I thought to myself. Perhaps he was awake and cooking up a copious breakfast, but what day was it? Would he be there? Al Cohn was a square. He worked all the time, and he had a penchant for eating out. I did a quick calculation as to how far I was from his place and decided it wouldn't hurt to swing on by. When I arrived at Al's, I tried the door and it was open, so I led myself in and proceeded directly into his sunny kitchen. If I could just get to that bountifully stocked fridge before Al started palavering, I could pull the thing off clean, or at least swig down a tall glass of cool, refreshing orange juice. As I was opening the fridge, I peered into the living room, and sure enough, there was Al, 
Reclining on his chair with his thick glasses on and his daily edition of the New York Times, he didn't look up, but he knew it was me. Hello, Baxter, he said. I'll be with you in just a moment. I've just got to finish this article. Something about oil in the Middle East. Something real wild. I mean, it's stirring. I find myself stirred by it. Well, don't mind me, I said. I'll just be here in the kitchen. I quickly procured a clean glass and removed the OJ from the fridge and proceeded to pour myself a tall glass of the good stuff. I quaffed the refreshing, vitamin-packed glass of Florida's best, poured myself another tall, quenching, revitalizing, and put the cardboard container back into the fridge. I dallied in the kitchen, glass in hand, sniffing around for a quick bite, perhaps a stray bagel or an open bag of chips. Salty, tasty, crispy. As I was eyeballing up the pantry, I heard Al behind me and I turned around. He was just standing there with his newspaper in hand, fuming. Just what, he said, do you think that you're doing? Excuse me, I said, aping Larry's little ir irksome trick, little trick. What are you doing with that orange juice? It looked at the glass in my hand, casually, innocently. I'm sorry, is something wrong? Yes, there is something wrong. I didn't say you could have any orange juice. Did I say you could have any orange juice? Did I? No, you did not. But I'm your guest. I'm your guest. I coolly took a slip from, sip from my glass, never taking my eyes off Al. The sip tasted wonderful. My guests, he stammered, get orange juice. For you, water. Well, I said nonplussed, that's pretty rude. You want your orange juice back? Take it. I splashed the remains. Uh, hold on. <laughs> I splashed the remains of the glass right in front of his, right in his face, and he lurched back a step, sopping with juice. He stumbled, feigning blindness, rolling up his newspaper baton fashion. Then he came at me, blindly swinging like a drunk. You bastard, he shouted, bashing me over the head with the newspaper baton comic fashion. I parried with my arms and laughed out loud. You deadbeat, he continued histrionically. You beggar, vagrant, get out of my house. Get out. He had me backed up against the door and I slipped out. Then, biding my time, I watched through the glass window as he walked back towards the bathroom. And when I saw the door close, I went right back into the kitchen and I poured myself another glass. Bright, orange, delicious. I drank down the glass, got a rag from the sink, and mopped the spilled sticky juice off the tile floor, still chuckling to myself. Then I returned the glass and rag to the sink, walked into the dimly lit, artistic, brooding living room, and plopped down on the tacky couch. The radio was set to National Public Radio as per usual. Mounted hideously on the wall was a huge and ugly lithograph, something abstract expressionist, 1950s New York, an incomprehensible vortex of childlike squiggles and squirts. Menacingly stacked on the coffee table were three brand new Wyndham Lewis books, Black Sparrow Press, reprint. Oh, great, I thought. Now he's got Wyndham Lewis books. Al emerged from the bathroom, carefully wiping his horn-rimmed glasses with his Oxford shirt and sat down in the chair. He wasn't even stunned that I was back. He was too lonely, really, to throw me out. I started, he started talking immediately in his usually scheduled routine. First the job, then the girls, and eventually... Inevitably, literature. I was hoping this time that he wouldn't talk about literature. I knew he would start in on the Wyndham Lewis books. The books with their freshly broken spines stared at me in foreboding anticipation. Our horrors await you, they whispered. The job he drawled in his affected brogue, knowing I didn't really give a damn. The job is going great. 
I can't believe I make so much money at my age. They love me there. I do my job. And if something isn't working, I fix it. I fix it. I helped a girl in the other department just, just yesterday. Her screen was frozen. And of course she comes to me with the problem. At first I wasn't sure what the problem was. But I leaned in the... And shit, you wouldn't believe how she smelled. Like a veritable bed of roses. Here I wondered to myself about the use of the word veritable. He continued, I never smelled a girl like her. Of course, she wasn't a girl. Pretty, pretty old, actually. Married. Has a few kids, too. I know, I've seen the pictures. There's quite a number of them, actually. All over a cubicle. In fact, frames ones, too. Oh, one picture is just so cute. Numbingly cute. It's her and his fat, greasy-looking Dago husband. And that slob, that Sicilian slob. I mean, I haven't even met him. But you can tell. You can just tell from the pictures. A total slob. Greasy-like. Anyway, in the picture, they're all posed out in front of this utterly gorgeous mountain range. It must be Europe, or maybe Colorado. I'm not sure. I should ask someday. And they've got the kids in their arms, and she's got this baby girl in her arms, and the pig has the baby boy in his arms, and they all look so fucking happy. Well, I mean, not happy. She has this faraway look in her eyes, like she wants something more. I just know, implicitly know, she's not satisfied with this guy, this slob, this pig. He looks like a complete bore, like the kind of guy that just talks and talks and never has anything real. I mean, palpable, tangible, nothing real to say. The kind of guy who just rants and raves, but now there's any substance. You know what I mean? I was flipping wearily through a book of Jackson Pollock paintings that I'd found on the coffee table next to the Lewis. I couldn't make heads or tails of any of it. I was hoping to hear all this... That, that, that Al would stop chattering about nonsense and maybe start talking about food, but he had to exhaust himself with malarkey before he could ever think of practical manners like breakfast or brunch or lunch or even something interesting to talk about, like what we're going to do tonight. Instead, it was always an hour of, or so of nonsense, like he had to cough up this big diseased worm of gobbledygook before he could even think straight. And what a worm it was! The only reason I... Must have been able to endure all of this. His complaining to raids was the bald fact that his life was worse than mine. Well, maybe not worse in the true economic sense, but in the psychic sense, the spiritual sense. It was worse, infinitely worse. The everyday mundane facts of life were maddening to him. Things like crowded buses, police sirens, manholes, air pollution, age statistics, oil in the Middle East, a Jewish deli closed on Christmas, commercial breaks, tied hockey games... Bad language, gang violence, bars that closed before two, sales tax, everything. These things made it difficult for Al to get out of bed some days. He simply could not cope. Eventually his monologue began to wind down, as it always inevitably did, Al exhausting himself, and I was beginning to feel a twang of anticipation, thinking now was the time to get down to business. And by business I meant the business of food, the staff of life. And so I returned to the I returned to the book to its place on the coffee table, leaned back into the couch, and I made myself comfortable, folded my arms, and eyed him up attentively. I was biding my time. I was ready. And there is something else I've been meaning to talk to you about, he said, as I waited patiently for the first mention of steak sandwiches or french fries. <laughs> uh, pardon, I lost my place again. Who the hell is these french fries? Oh, uh, let me pause for two seconds. Okay, uh, sorry. Uh, and here we are where he says, um, I pay, waited patiently for the first mention of steak sandwiches or french fries or coleslaw or pickles 
or ketchup or toast or waffles or maybe just split pea soup. Something pressing, something urgent. Something has been ringing my head all, all morning. Something I forgot to mention. Yes, I said, leaning forward, poised, ready, willing to accept his offer to cook me a porterhouse steak or maybe a grilled cheese with bacon. Wyndham Lewis, he hissed. Oh God, I thought, here it comes. He made a heroic grab for men without art and began reading huge passages from it, the dead, dry prose crackling in the air like a death rattle. Every paragraph or so, he would pause lugubriously to make an inane comment, something completely out of context and compl painfully boring. After every snippet of lackluster commentary, he would look me directly in the eye, his gaze piercing deep and trying to gauge my reaction, presumably hoping I would be stunned by what he believed was his astute and scholarly opinion. How could I break it to him that I thought he and his Wyndham Lewis were both full of so much shit that this sort of this sort of behavior wouldn't would certainly wouldn't get me a free lunch. And it was getting well on past lunchtime at this point. Didn't he eat? Or had he already consumed a huge breakfast before I arrived, so completely satiated that he couldn't possibly stomach another bite until dinner? Or perhaps he was just watching me sweat, maliciously hoping I would finally break down and start screaming for food, starved beyond tolerable human limits. Perhaps I should start gnawing on my finger, just a drop, just to drop a hint? Would it take blood? I looked down at my finger. The pale flesh vaguely resembled tenderloin. So you like this, he broached? Like... I said, my nerves twittering on their end. This? Lewis? Of course, Lewis. No, Al, I do not. Do not. Do not like Lewis. Do not like Lewis. No, Al, I don't. Frankly, I think he's full of it. Full of? Full of shit. I couldn't stand it anymore. By this time, he was already moved on to the next volume, Time and the Western Man. And it was driving me out of my skull. Sometimes he didn't even have to read it. He could quote whole pages. He leaned back in his chair, apparently out of breath, astonished. Are you serious, he asked, incredulously. Yes, Al, I'm serious. That stuff, that stuff is garbage. Besides, he's a Nazi. How can you, a Jew, even stand for that sort of thing? How can you? It's the man's ideas I'm interested in, Baxter, not the man's ethics. Ethics, I said. Besides, your precious pound was a Nazi, and he approved completely of Lewis. Completely. Celine was a Nazi, and Hampson was a Nazi. Hampson was not a Nazi. Was. Was not. Well, not as far as I know. And besides, Hampson was a good writer. A good writer. Period. He was a human being, and he was real. That's the difference. It went on like this. Escalating. Vicious. We were at each other's throats. I didn't even care about the food anymore. I dived into the verbal fray with all teeth and claws bared. I took a stand, refusing to put up with Al's pedagogical pedant... Ped, ped, <laughs> These little words, word things. Pedagogical, pedagogical pant, pedantry, his dyspeptic prolixity, his perennial peevishness. His ideas reeked of chalk dust and broken clocks. Like myself, Al tore his text slipshod from filthy partisan magazines and dusty tomes. But whereas I stood for the common man and the intellect of the heart, Al stood for the academy, the state, the chalk. By two o'clock, after skewering Benjamin, Rilke, Lewis and Gibbon, the argument had died down. It was obvious that neither of us had any safe idea what we were talking about, and eventually we didn't even remember the argument was about in the first place. We were both young in the world of letters and full of the inky piss and vinegar of the youthful, hot-headed Bellatrist, and rarely did we know how to utilize 
the repositories of information we religiously stuffed into our tender noggins. The result was our venomous ink-spitting ink matches. Ink depleted, the empty stomach, resu stomach resumes authority. And so the topic of food returns. I had to bring it up, and so I did. Well, I'm not all that hungry, was all he said. I just sat there, staring at him, fixing him intently with my hopefully menacing gaze. I wasn't going anywhere. Though I could use a coffee, he amended, dreamily. Well, I thought, a coffee's a start. Maybe I could possibly get a bagel out of the whole thing. A bagel with cream cheese. We decided on a coffee shop that wasn't too far away, the Quarry Street Cafe. And anybody in Philadelphia who is getting as old as I'm getting remembers that place. The Quarry Street Cafe. I knew for a fact they had good bagels, and that the bagels, or that they had bagels, and that the bagels they had tended to be good and fresh. I didn't bring this up just yet. I bided my time. I would wait until we arrived. We walked through the sunny afternoon without saying a word. I looked at all the people walking around in the thin spring sunlight, observed them as they, peeled in, they peered into gallery windows at bad art, or even worse, reflections of themselves. Today the art didn't seem so bad. I was glad I was there, serving its futile purpose, taking up its required space. It seemed to fit today. And it served its purpose just fine, gliding past my vision as I walked down the sunny street with Al. Al, Al himself felt he had to take this a step further, actually stopping to look at the hideous stuff, going all breathless as he paused at a window and gawking like a dumb cow at some messily unintelligible blur of a canvas. At least he didn't comment on it. He just stared. We arrived at the coffee shop and I found us a seat in the back and, oh, by the way, Al, you think you could spot me for coffee? Yeah, sad, I don't have a dime today. After a rude pause, knowing beforehand that I never had any money, he gave in and said, okay, and that's when I pointed out my finger, shining pen light, illuminating the pre-wrapped bagel with cream cheese sitting with a plum in its little basket. Yes, the one with the onions, how about it? The onions? He dare ask me why onions? I gritted my teeth and said I like onions. And that's when he says that he's never had a bagel with onions. Yes, but don't Jews like onions on their bagels? With a violent glare, he asked me why I would say a thing like that. And I say I really don't know. But I'm half Jewish and I have a vague memory of my grandmother and Queens always preferring bagels with onions. Saying anything to get that goddamn bagel. Well, he says, it's a ridiculous notion that thinks just because my Jewish grandmother from Queens preferred bagels with onions does not denote every Jew in America would like them also. Yes, I agree. It was silly of me. So silly, really. Haha. <laughs> so sorry I ever mentioned that. The girl at the counter is very attentive and she was smiling at me when we walked in, but now she's just staring at us. In fact, a number of people around here are just staring at us because, and that is because Al's a very loud guy and he's getting louder and he's saying Jew every other third, every other third word and every fourth word is onions and these are two things that no one wants to hear about when they're attempting to enjoy their coffee and cigarettes. Oh, they're smoking in the cafe. That's, that's a long time ago also. Coffee and cigarettes at 2.30 on an early spring, or as a, on a sunny spring afternoon. A Saturday afternoon? I still didn't know, or care for that matter. I just wanted that bagel. Onions or Jews or no onions or Jews. Eventually the Jew breaks down and buys two bagels with onions, one for me and another for him, and he says, I better like this. And I assure him that he absolutely will. And with that, we take our seats, two coffees, two bagels and onions, a Jew and a half Jew. Halfway through the bagels and coffee, 
creamy, chewy, filling, and black, steaming, stimulating. There's this, there's this little sort of a device that the, the book uses. I think at least the first half where anytime he eats things or thinks about food, there's always a parenthesis with the kind of three words, which I really liked at the time. It was fun. Myself smoking my second cigarette, Al admits that the bagel with cream cheese is pretty good with onions. Not bad at all, he says. Pretty good, actually. I restrain myself from the I told you so and find myself resigned to just thank Providence that I wrangled this very simple food out of him in the first place. In the back of the cafe is a number of bookshelves with dusty old books not for sale, just, just for atmosphere, I believe, and I select for myself a tattered, worn copy of Huckleberry Finn off the shelf behind me and flip through thoughtfully to, have, to avoid having to talk to Al. And he takes the cue and walks back there and finds a book for himself. He takes his time, and I assume he's just looking for a Wyndham Lewis book, but I have a good hunch they wouldn't store rotting gunk like that here, and apparently they don't, because he comes back with a clunky selection of Sartre's gloomier essays. Perhaps it really would have been better if they didn't have the Lewis, because nothing gets Al going like Sartre. Nothing! That's a pun. But at least he's already absorbed in the book and keeping quiet. He leaves his money on the table like you would at a bar, and I help myself to a buck and get myself a refill without even asking. I return to the table, not a word said. He's still stuck like a broken record on the same page. So I try my luck and grab two more dollars, head up to the counter, smile at the pretty girl, and quickly order myself a slice of pie. Hmm, let me have the, hmm. How's the cherry cheesecake? Oh, it's great. You make it here yourself? Well, she says, I don't make it myself, but it is made here. She smiles at me. I smile back and say, well, I guess I'll try the cherry cheesecake then. And how much is that? Three dollars? Oh, <laughs> I only have two. That's fine. Are you sure? Okay, then. Thank you so, so, so much. I'll never forget this. Never. She smiles and again and maybe even blushes a little. And She gives me the big piece of cherry cheesecake on a little white plate with a silver fork. I thank her one more time and glide back to the table. Al doesn't even look up. Seems he has finally graduated to the next page, and I silently gobble up the cheesecake as fast as I can. And when I'm done, I give the plate a good lick, slurping up all that extra cherry sauce and stray crumbs of cheesecake, and then I shuffle back to the counter to my lovely new friend, the girl at the counter. There's a lot of bad editing here, like they use the word counter twice. But I guess I should stop pointing this out to you as you guys are now on page 29 and you're still listening. So it goes on. It was delicious, I say. And feeling a little garrulous and wired from the two cups of coffee, I ask her if she'd like to join me on a date this late sometime this week. Oh, I couldn't, she says, looking at the floor and genuinely blushing. I'm sorry. I have a boyfriend. I was waiting for that one. She tells me this with the same air one would say, one would have, saying, I'd love to, but I have AIDS and will die tomorrow. I start to feel very nervous, and I say a very brilliant, oh, and I head back to the table with Al, my tail between my legs. I quickly light another cigarette, and I sit there feeling stupid and small, staring at my open page of Huckleberry Finn without reading, and trying not to think about the eyes of that girl back there at the counter. I notice her staring out of the corner of my eye, and I feel flush with embarrassment and defeat. I've got to get out of here, I mumble, nudging Al and trying to pull him out of the foggy vortex of Sard and back into the now, real, desperate world. He looks up at me, a disoriented amnesiac. Hmm? I said, we've got to get out of here, like, now. Sure, sure, man, sure. Let me just 
whew, where was it? I was just, ah, uh, let me just finish this, man, this passage. And with that, he dives head first back into the book. I'm getting real fidgety and worrying. I have to get out of this place. So I peel off another two bills from his stash, stuff them surreptitiously into my pocket, and bid Al adieu, and I say I'll call him later. He doesn't even look up, thank you, Sart. I run the gauntlet past the counter girl and her invisible boyfriend and burst through the door and back into the sun-splashed streets. And off I go. And that's the end of the first chapter. Thanks for listening, and uh, should have the uh, second chapter up sometime next week. All right, thanks again, and good night.